Average is it fits in all the way. Average is other people can do what you just did. That you're a replaceable cog in the machine. That average work gets you an A or a B plus in school. I have enough faith in humanity to believe that if someone seeks to be non-average in a field of endeavor, they can. That doesn't mean you're going to be the fastest runner of the hundred-yard dash, but it might mean that you're the most interesting person on the field today. So, whether you're a book cover designer or you're somebody who's doing customer service, the question is: Is there anybody who could do what you just tried to do better than you? And if the answer is yes, then what do they know that you don't know? Go learn that. So when I think about AI, AI can read a, a wrist X-ray and figure out if your hand is sprained or broken. That's mediocre radiology work. And if that's all you do for a living, is that you happen to be the radiologist in the emergency room? Please pay me. That job's going to go away because the X-ray is going to read itself. This episode. Of the Kintsugi Podcast is brought to you by Pause, Breathe, Reflect, which can help you bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. Hey there, my fellow like-hearted humans. It's Michael, and this is the Kintsugi Podcast. This week, we talk about connection with Seth Godin. So here's a little backstory. I didn't know anything about Seth through my corporate life. And then in 2014 into 2015, I left the coziness of my corporate life to be an entrepreneur. And someone told me about this guy named Seth Godin. And I liked what he was putting out. You'll hear in the interview that I took his MBA, found Stephen Pressfield, which we've had on the Kintsugi podcast when it first came out. And coming out of his program, I wrote my memoir. As he would say, I shipped it. So Seth is a pretty big deal when it comes to my entrepreneurial journey. So when I reached out to Seth about coming on the Kintsugi podcast, at this stage, we're still pretty young in the relaunch. I was hopeful, thinking, what's the worst he could say? Well, that would have been no, which I really thought that's what he was going to say. And he said, yes. And then he said, let's do it tomorrow. But in my head, I was like, really? Tomorrow? I'm not ready. But here's the thing. As Seth would say, Saturday Night Live goes on at 1130 each Saturday night, not because it's ready, but because it's 1130. So now I have Seth on the calendar and I wasn't ready. But we got to show up, right? So in the interview, you might hear his dog barking. This is a shorter story of connection. And I probably could have done a better job being more eloquent with my questions. But here's the thing. We are perfectly imperfect here. 
That's what the show is about. Connection, celebrating our scars, our golden symbols of resilience, and being really comfortable with being imperfect and embracing the attitude that we show up. We do this work even when we're not ready because we're never truly ready. So as I reflect on this interview, I can see beautiful ways I can make it better. But Seth was the pro that he is, and he shares some beautiful wisdom. So if you're ready, settle into a comfortable position. Take a healthy breath in and a slow releasing breath out and get to know Seth Godin. Seth, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Good to see you. We've been on similar paths for a long time. We have. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. So 10 years ago, I had no idea who you were. And someone said, you should check out this guy named Seth Godin. I was in a corporate job for 22 years and I left to become an entrepreneur or a freelancer, depending on your perspective. And they're like, yeah, he does this blog every day. And I signed up for your blog. I was like, oh, I like this guy's vibe. And then you announced something called the Alt-MBA. And I was like, hmm, I think I might try to do that. So I was in Alt-MBA fourth. Whoa, a pioneer. Yeah, thank you for that. And in the Alt-MBA, as you know, you gave us a collection of books. And Stephen Pressfield's War of Art was a book that changed my life. So thank you for that. Me too. Ultimately, the show is about connection. So I want to start off here because my wife and I love couple origin connection stories. Okay. So how did you meet your wife? Uh, I don't usually talk about my family in detail, but it's, it's safe to say that we met in college and we have been inseparable ever since. All right, cool. Awesome. I love that. Thank you for sharing. Didn't mean to pry, but I always love to know how people connect. We are both upstate New Yorkers or Western New Yorkers. You grew up in Buffalo. I grew up in Rochester. And for me, I think the first time I realized that the environment was a topic of any interest was during Love Canal. That was the first time. And maybe that commercial that was airing in the 70s with the indigenous person that wasn't indigenous to our country. He was Italian, yes. He was Italian and there was a tear in the whole pollution thing. So that's when the environment became a topic for me. I, I'm not sure when the environment became a topic for you, but I would love, as we think about connection current day, I would love to get into the Carbon Almanac that I love and I've gifted, just around where you think we are and what the earth needs from us right now. Oh, okay. Lots to work with here. For those just catching up, Love Canal was the output of a company called Hooker Chemical. Hooker Chemical made things that were in things that almost everyone in America was buying. It was the industrial system at work. We needed stuff, they made it. But one of the byproducts of what they made was toxic and they dumped it in the ground in a housing development, didn't tell anybody, led to birth defects and a lot of trauma. That was one of the first super fun sites. And in the 70s, moms started to speak up, stand up and say, our families are at risk. We need to do something about it. 
The output of industrialism is interesting to think about because factories are so much more efficient than they used to be, but they also create far more byproduct than they used to. And one of those byproducts is putting little tiny amounts of carbon into the air at scale. And as a result, our climate is changing probably irrevocably, and we're going to have to live with it. Whether we can do something about it or not is secondary, but we have to live with it. So what I did was I've written a lot of books. Some of them have done pretty well. And I blogged about the climate for the first time 15 or 20 years ago, and it didn't solve the problem. And ever since then, I found myself not blogging about it very much because I felt like a hypocrite and I felt uninformed. So rather than just writing a book about what was happening to the climate, I thought I could create a metaphor and I organized volunteers to do something. And it turns out that is our solution, that when we connect, when we find the others and change the system, not just pretend to recycle plastic, when we change the system, it makes us feel better and it also does something. So the Carbon Almanac for me changed my life and it's a metaphor for what is possible. And so the behind the scenes on how did it work to create that? Because you brought together people from all across the world you weren't necessarily leading the project per se, if I understand correctly, or directing it. So how did that come to be where you could bring a collection of like-heartedness and people passionate about the environment together and create something that I think really is a gift to humans to hopefully save humans <laughs> on this planet? Uh, because the earth will always exist, maybe not in the form that it currently is, but this environmental push is probably more about saving the humans than saving the planet. For sure. Earth is going to be fine. So I'm a volunteer and so is everybody else. By taking money out of the equation, I changed the hierarchy structure. I found a book publisher that was willing to put up in advance so that our expenses could get paid. And then I just invited a hundred people, some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't, to be our core group. Then I blogged it and people could apply to be in it. This part was not the hard part, that if you show up in any community and say, who wants to help, a lot of people are going to raise their hand. The hard part was maintaining quality and giving up control at the same time, that we were organized without a manager, but we had an organizer. I was the organizer, and then other people pitched in to help me organize. We knew there was going to be a page 19, because between page 18 and page 20, something has to be there. So page 19 thinking said, there's going to be a page 19. We don't know what it is. Who's got a good idea? And then it was, who can make it better? And for a 97,000-word almanac, which won a Worldwide Design Award, that footnotes and has had not one significant error, we did that one footnote, one page at a time. Who wants to make page 19 better? Okay. And again, and again, and again. That is the way everything gets built in our world, but we're so hooked on assembly lines, and perfection that we forget. This iterative process, make a good accident and repeat it, that's what we did. That's what we do. Yeah, that's how we bring about change in the world. So in 2022, I rode my bike across the country. Did you go the downhill way or the uphill way? <laughs> a little bit of both. It's actually as hilly from like east of Indiana to DC as it is out West. And a lot of people don't realize that. It's just short little punchy hills yeah. the whole time. So you get some majestic climbs out West that last for 10, 15, 20 miles. 
but on the East Coast, it just kills you with like little bump after little bump. And also in Kansas, in the Flint Hills of Kansas, appropriately named, it's up 15% pitch, down, up, down. It's, it's a roller coaster that's no fun. But as I was riding actually through Kansas, I came to another cyclist. He was from Switzerland and he was having his midlife crisis ride across the country. The pandemic blew up his mental health and he was like, I'm going to come here and ride my, ride my bike across America and find myself. And what was interesting was he had some soda cans or I would say pop because I grew up where I grew up. It's pop. Of course. So he had pop cans on the back of his bike, strapped down for recycling later. So you mentioned just plastic recycling and just this whole this whole recycling enterprise out there. And so current day, I struggle with what to do with recyclables. And I wanted to ask you, having gone through the work with the Almanac, like what do you do by the off chance that you have a one-time use plastic bottle? What do you actually do with it? I throw it in the trash. I do it to make myself feel terrible. (laughs) Plastics recycling is a fraud. It is a known fraud. It was invented by the plastics industry before they knew how to recycle. And the laws of physics mean that we cannot recycle almost any plastic. Less than 8% of all plastic is recycled. That if you live where I live, near New York City, and you put recycling in the blue bin, they will burn it. And you have helped them by pre-sorting something that they can burn fairly efficiently while it puts all sorts of horrible things in the air. By throwing it in the trash, what I remind myself is, number one, don't buy something in plastic if you can avoid it. And number two, me not buying plastic isn't going to change anything. But what might change things is me leading a team of 300 or 1900 people that teach everybody else that plastics recycling is a fraud. What might change everything is if we get together, it only takes 100 or 1000 of us, and lobby for an appropriate price on plastic. That if we change the system, then the world changes. And so part of what connection is about is not buying into the myth of the carbon footprint and you becoming more pure and less of a hypocrite. It means finding other people and realizing that amplified voices change the world, that they have banned leaf blowers in the town next to mine all year and in half the year in my town. And it only took 100 people to do it. Wow. For another day, I need to figure out how to do that. This is a serious thing because this is something that drives me a little crazy. I'm really quite calm. Uh, You know, by training, you know, I'm a- No, you seem very calm. I'm a meditation teacher. Let me explain. I would like to make you a little bit crazier. (laughs) One hour of a gas-powered leaf blower has the same impact on the climate as driving a Ford F-150 gas-powered pickup truck from New York to Los Angeles. And so if you buy an electric car and still have a landscaper using a gas leaf blower, you have undone all of the benefit of that new car you buy. All the benefits, yeah. Our town, because as the crow flies, I'm I'm on the other side of the Hudson. I'm directly across from you. And it's nonstop. Yeah. I actually recorded a meditation about leaf blowers for my app because it was driving me so crazy. Coming up, Seth and I talk about how to make work work better and what it will take 
to create the change we seek in the world. All right, let's take a break. Take a full breath in and a slow releasing breath out. And relax the body as you soak up our conversation. Ah, I hope that felt good. Okay, now that we're a little bit more relaxed, can we be real? I think our morning routines, well, they've gotten a little out of control. You might not have time in the morning to meditate because you're busy doing other things like trying to get to work or getting the kids off to school. And this is where my app, Pause, Breathe, Reflect, comes in because I built it for busy people with a whole bunch of shorter practices. So if you don't have 10 minutes in the morning to meditate, cool beans. You're a human after all. But I bet you have five times throughout the day when you have two minutes to practice and let go of stress and bring mindfulness to your everyday moments. So today, download Pause, Breathe, Reflect for free and begin to stress less, sleep better, and join a community of like-hearted humans rippling something worth rippling into the world. All right, let's go back to our conversation and celebrate the Kintsugi within us all. All right, so I want to transition to another book. Of your 21 books, Seth, I believe I own 14 of them. Oh, thanks. So I have a whole collection of Seth Godin books. I, I do want to move us from the almanac to the Song of Significance, but going back to put a bow on the environment, your recommendation to really make a difference is get together with like-hearted, like-minded folks and amplify your voices on the actions that truly matter. Yeah, it's not hard. It's not hard. Just get your high school, get the high school to stop serving meat for lunch. Yes, yes. Just one thing, just organ it. It will make you feel better and it will start to spread. Yes, I, I think that's, hey, the research is quite clear. The data is quite clear that our diet is giving mama earth heartburn. And that's another thing that, became ever so like visible to me in a different way as I rode my bike across the country, like riding through the cattle fields and seeing how much corn and how much soybean we grow in this country. And then knowing that very little of it goes towards human consumption. It's all feed. It, it just blew my mind. And I grew up across from a farm outside of Rochester, but still it was it was something else. It was crazy. Yeah. So 2023, we're sitting here at 2024. And I look back on 2023 and I, I see it as a year that was almost like a, a teenager going through puberty, trying to figure out how we're going to make work work. So early days of the pandemic, we all went to Zoom or Microsoft Teams, and we found a way to make it work. And depending on what data you look at, either it was great or not great or somewhere in between. And in 23, there's a whole bunch of buildings that were not occupied. So back to the office we go. But work still isn't working. 
And you see it in a lot of different ways. So when you think about this year coming into 2024 and the work you did with the Song of Significance, how do we make work work better? Because that is another form of connection for us humans. Bad meetings are a symptom. They're not the cause of the problem. They're a symptom of the death throes of the industrial age. So we have to think about how our parents made a living compared to what we and our kids are doing. The industrial age says that if you can figure out how to make a car a dollar cheaper than your competitor, you're going to sell more cars. Productivity is a simple measure in an industrial world of how many units can we make and how cheap can we make them. And so there are still giant organizations and small ones that need to measure this race to the bottom, churn it out. Can you issue an insurance policy five seconds faster? Can you lower the price of this widget by cutting corners? This entire mindset is about obedience and compliance and indoctrination. It's about caste and it's about reliability. But that's not where value is being created anymore. Because when you race to the bottom, you might get to the bottom. And in many places, we can't make the thing any cheaper, right? So that lovely hat that you're wearing, it wasn't made by an atelier where people were hand designing stuff. It was. It came from a factory designed to make stuff as cheap as possible. But then we have computers and we have networks and we have innovation and we have ideas and the value is created from human connection, human connection to possibility. But that's not what we built our organizations around. We built them around compliance. So if you're on a Zoom call for an hour and you're listening to someone talk and talk and talk and you're just supposed to shake your head, well, of course you feel horrible. You've been brutalized for 60 minutes. No one asked you. No one created the conditions for you to do better work. Yeah, no one. You don't feel seen at all. And so the, the idea of the song of significance was to take a deep breath and say, work is about making a change happen. If you want to do something significant, you must make change happen. What is the change you seek to make? Who are you seeking to change? And if we can be honest with each other about what we're trying to do, we're more likely to do it. So in a world where there's a lot of, as you've talked about, teacher what's on the test. So you have you know, Gen X and baby boomers maybe in leadership positions at companies, and you have Gen Z and millennials worried about what's on the test. And we, you know, tell kids where to go to school and, and what courses to take. And now you get into the workforce and, you know, the whole idea of like speaking up or speaking out or being different, right? Being the nail that sticks out of the wall seems scary. So where would you recommend we begin to change work for the better? Because you have leadership that I think has laid down grooves or like, this is how we work. It's based on compliance. And you also have generations that have come up now where they're also looking to be compliant because they've been told, here's what to do. So I think I might know your answer in the spirit of like, who goes first? Like we all do, <laughs> but I would love for you to comment further on that. Well, you know, it's really scary. What's really scary is tons of woodworkers cut their fingers off with table saws. And at steel plants to this day, but really a lot in the old days, someone would fall into a vat of molten ore and they just keep working. Everyone else, not that person. And, you know, work used to be physically horribly dangerous. It still is in some industries. And so perhaps what we might want to do is instead of saying, how do we make work more convenient and comfortable? We might want to say, how do we find a boss and hire a boss who will permit us 
to do inconvenient things that are uncomfortable. Because showing up to do inconvenient things that are uncomfortable in service of a change we are proud of, that's work. Work is not a hobby you tend to get paid for. Work is leaning into the liminal stage between here and there to make a difference. And if that doesn't scare you, then you're not trying hard enough. Yeah, that's true. So my first job, Penfield, New York, was at a restaurant called Friendly's. Did you have Friendly's in Buffalo? Oh, yeah. So when I started, I washed the dishes. And then I graduated and scooped ice cream in the classic Friendly flair. I was trained on how to properly scoop the ice cream with the patent Friendly flair, waffle cone or sugar cone, right? And then I was then promoted to the grill. So got to make breakfast and stuff like that. But I was never a chef. And so I bring this up because... I've heard you talk about the difference between like a bottle washer, a cook, and a chef. And I think this speaks too to significance, to to become more like a chef. And I would love for you to share more about that. So the original title of my book, Lynchpin, which I don't think I've ever said on a podcast, was The Chef, The Cook, and The Bottle Washer. Oh, wow. And a bottle washer is working for as cheap as possible, and they follow instructions exactly. A cook follows the recipes but is responsible for their own quality. And a chef makes recipes. And you can have any of those three jobs. Bottle washers, easy in, easy out. The training takes three minutes. A cook takes a lot more training, but you're not responsible for the recipes. And the chef, the chef just gets a blank sheet of paper and has to create magic. And we have right in this minute more chefs on earth, metaphorically, than ever any time in history. And yet, Plenty of people, younger people too, blink and say, no, I'd rather be a cook. Do you have a recipe? I'm lucky I married a chef. <laughs> so I, I eat much better than when I did when I was younger. So 2023 was also the year we started to pay a little bit more attention to AI. And you've written about it. I've tried out Claude based on your blog post. So I played with that. And you have shared that AI will eliminate mediocre work, if I have that right. Mm-hmm. So the question I, I just want to start with is, how do we know if our work is mediocre? Because if you make the pool big enough, everyone's average, right? And the standard deviations, if you look at it that way, and we can get into means and all that jazz. And a lot of times we don't really, in a corporate sense, provide really great feedback to folks about the quality of one's work. So How would we know when we come into this sense of eliminating your? So if you make the if you make the pool bigger, it makes it easier to not be average, not harder. If you make the pool bigger, then there is an edge that is available to you. And what I mean by mediocre is average. Average is it fits in all the way. Average is other people can do what you just did, that you're a replaceable cog in the machine. That average work gets you an A or a B plus in school. That when you're doing something like Richard Feynman, the great physicist, he was not average. He was off the charts at what he did. And I have enough faith in humanity to believe that if someone seeks to be non-average in a field of endeavor, they can. That doesn't mean you're going to be the fastest runner of the 100-yard dash, but it might mean that you're the most interesting person on the field today. And so whether you're a book cover designer 
or you're somebody who's doing customer service, the question is, is there anybody who could do what you just tried to do better than you? And if the answer is yes, then what do they know that you don't know? Go learn that. So when I think about AI, AI can read a a wrist x-ray and figure out if your hand is sprained or broken, your wrist. That's mediocre radiology work. And if that's all you do for a living, is it you happen to be the radiologist in the emergency room, please pay me, that job's going to go away because the x-ray is going to read itself. And the opportunity is to be the special radiologist who either deals with a patient in a way that helps them feel seen or deals with the data in a way that others don't have the nuance to do. And that is the race. So I'm very flattered that if you ask an AI to write like Seth Godin, it gives it a good try. And that's the very first thing I did when I got AI. But I was also pleased that it didn't sound weird enough to actually be me. It was an average version of me. And I remind myself regularly, if I'm writing something that an AI trained on my writing could do, I probably shouldn't be bothering. How many blog posts are you up to? Do you know? Or have you lost count? It's between 9,000 and 10,000. And before you hit publish on one of them, is there a sense like, oh, this one's going to resonate? Because I, I can only assume that they don't all resonate in the same way, right? There's probably blog posts that you write where you get a lot of feedback or commentary. And there's probably moments where it feels like crickets. But do you have a sense before you hit send? So I have a sense. I have a sense and I'm always wrong. (laughs) I I wrote a post the last day of the year about how to pick a college. Yes. And I I wrote it for a woman who came to dinner the night before who had uh, two kids who were both about to make decisions about college. I selfishly wrote it for three people. And it was one of my most popular posts of the year. I don't know. No idea. Uh, College is a big thing. We are finally done with undergrad, but that was a whole experience. So, Indeed. It's exciting and a trying time for parents and students and everyone in between. If you're trying to find high school but with more binge drinking and you're trying to do it without going a quarter million dollars into debt, it's very trying. If you are willing to give up the sticker on the back of your car and look for an experience that could change your kids for the better, particularly if you're willing to celebrate a gap year, it's thrilling. It's absolutely thrilling. The problem is we've been indoctrinated and bullied into thinking that our worth as parents is somehow related to how famous a college is in U.S. News's flawed rankings. And I'm just furious about the whole thing. Yes. And and the quality of the sticker on your car, right? (laughs) Yes. You just, we're doing it for the sticker, Seth. At least tell yourself the truth. Yeah, yeah, we're doing it for the sticker and the the sweatshirt that we get at Parents Weekend so we can wear it around town. Oh, you get the sweatshirt or you have to buy the sweatshirt? Well, I think we've bought the sweatshirt, so. Exactly. We don't get anything. I have a friend who visited a friend of hers at Cornell and bought the sweatshirt. She saved herself a fortune. (laughs) Yes, that's true. All right, so I'm going to get you out on this question. It's holiday season, which just came completely the holiday season. And inevitably you get, you know, the holiday letter and the holiday photos of what people have done in the world. And we got a card yesterday, just by chance, from one of our friends, Ed, who lives up in Boston with his wife and two kids. And he ends it with this. So he talks about everything they're doing, but he ends it this way. And so we carry on. Art can save us. Hope dies last. 
and small acts can change the world. So as we wrap up, I didn't know if you had any parting wisdom for us as we head into a new year, maybe in the spirit of what Ed has shared about hope or art or small acts that we can do to build more connection and create the change we seek in the world. I think the media has brainwashed us into thinking that our job is to make things perfect and that that will never happen. So it's easy to be frustrated. We can't make things perfect, but we can definitely make them better. And it doesn't matter how little better, we can make them better. So the work is not to sit with your arms folded and say, okay, show me how to make it perfect. Where's the manual? It's where's one person that if I connect with them, if I leave space for them, if I can be present with them, that one person will appreciate it. Something better will happen as a result. We don't do that enough. We don't need any preparation and we don't need a sticker to do it. We simply have to begin. Thank you. I appreciate what you've put into the world. I'm glad I found you about 10 years ago. And through the all MBA, I wrote my memoir. And so I appreciate the encouragement. I remember you asked me, how many copies do you think you wish to sell? And I said three. One to each daughter and one to some random stranger. And I'm 33% towards my goal. A random stranger bought one of the copies and my daughters wanted it for free. So, but still, <laughs> I'm glad I wrote the book. I appreciate you and the ripple that you put into the world. And you continue to be an inspiration to me. And I know a whole bunch of a whole bunch more like-hearted humans. So keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate you. Well, thank you. You are making a difference. One person at a time. Keep leading. Thanks, Seth. Thanks. Well, that was cool. He shared something in our conversation that he's never shared before. The little story of the bottle washer, the cook, and the chef. In the show notes, I'll put all the different ways you can connect with Seth. I receive his daily blog. And as you know, from listening to the conversation, Seth has been an inspiration to me. So I greatly appreciate that he came on our Kintsugi podcast. As you might know, each week we do a short meditation to soak in what our guest has shared with us this week. This week, our practice will be about connection. Finding those people that you can connect with to create the change you wish to seek in the world. So when you're ready, settle into a comfortable position. You can close your eyes if you like. And we'll drop in. We'll take a few generous inhales and slow releasing exhales. Taking this moment to relax the body and embrace what Seth shared with us. And as you come into the natural rhythm of the breath, I invite you to bring to mind a change you wish to see in the world. 
It could be anything at all. It might be in your local community, within your home or company, or maybe it's at a larger scale. What's one thing you wish to see in the world? What's that vision you have? And with this vision, who can you connect with? Perhaps it's just one or two people to start. Two people that see what you see. They seek the same change you seek. Who would those people be? Who might you be able to reach out to? All right, nice job. When you feel ready, you can ease your attention and open the eyes if you've had them closed and wiggle those beautiful fingers and toes and give your body a little stretch. If you like, you can journal about this a little bit further or reflect on it a little bit longer and reach out to those people that came to mind because you are empowered to make change happen. I want to take another moment here to thank Seth for coming on the show. Seth, we appreciate all that you've put into the world. You've made a difference. And the world needs your energy. So continue to ripple what you're rippling into it. Also, I'd like to give a shout out to the like-hearted humans at SASPod that make the Kintsuki podcast sound so great and help it ripple into all corners of this big blue marble that we all share. And now, I want to thank you for listening and supporting the Kintsuki podcast. And if you want to go above and beyond in your support, I could certainly use a kind rating, a review, subscribing, or sharing because it does something to the algorithm that I don't completely understand. But when you engage in this way, it helps others find our like-hearted community. If you've already done so, thank you for the extra support. And if you haven't done so yet, today might be a really good day to do so. And if you'd like to receive some additional resources that can help you connect with yourself and others, like my Better Life Workbook and the inspirational text messages I send throughout the week, and of course, our Pause, Breathe, Reflect meditation app, I'll put those links in our show notes. And remember, between now and next week's story of connection, when you have a challenging moment, slow down, come back to your breath, know that you've got this and we've got you. And together, we will ripple something worth rippling into the world. I love you for listening, and I hope to see you next week. Until then, toodaloo.